We'll start in Mark chapter 15 and then read through the beginning of chapter 16 here. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our God, we know that your word is true because it comes from you, a true and living God. Lord, would you guide our understanding by your spirit now? Would you increase our faith here and help us to believe? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. We'll start in verse 42. Uh, This is now after Jesus' death, but this is God's word beginning in Mark 15, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. Now, if you've been with us at Big Greek, we've spent a whole year following Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, almost a year exactly, and we finally made it to the end. This is the last sermon, then, that you'll hear from me, at least for some time, from the book of Mark. Now, at this point, 
If you are reading out of a Bible that's sitting in your lap and you're following along with me as you read, you might be thinking, wait a minute. There's still, there's still 12 verses left here, and those are in my Bible too. There are some things that are recorded after verse 8. You'll also, if you have those verses in your Bible, you'll probably also see a note from the translators. If you have a pew Bible, it's at the end of those verses that says something like, these verses were not in the earliest manuscripts. So before we actually look at what this text says, we have to address the question of how the Bible got in our lap in the first place. So it's troubling to some people when they find out that we have none of the original Greek New Testament manuscripts. We don't have Mark's original writing, his first copy. We don't have John's. We don't have Matthew's. We don't have any of Paul's stuff, nothing from James. And and that should be no surprise to us on some level. I mean, these things were written in the first century right after Jesus, and so that's a long time ago. And keeping those things intact would be very difficult. So even though we don't have the original manuscripts, what we do have are copies of the manuscripts. The good news is that we have lots and lots of copies. We have five, more than 5,000 partial or complete pieces of Greek manuscripts in the New Testament. Just for comparison's sake, that is 10 times more than any other ancient manuscript in existence. That's a hundred times more than the number of copies of, ancient, of most ancient manuscripts. So the sort of things that you study in your history classes, and no one asks how we have them, we have just a handful, sometimes three, four copies of them, but we read them because we find them valuable. The Bible has more than 5,000 copies. And the reason why there were so many copies is because people actually believed that Jesus was who he said he was. And they wanted to hear from the apostles about what they wrote about Jesus. And so these writings then were spreading and being transmitted to lots of people and places over the course of centuries. Now, at this point, some people go, well, then how is this not like the game of telephone? Remember that? Did you ever play that when you were a kid? It's kind of, it makes your ear kind of wet a little bit, but you probably know at least the sense of the game that one person has a sentence, and usually it's kind of a funny sentence, and then they whisper it in somebody's ear, and then that person whispers it in somebody else's ear. No one, no one's nodding. Is, is that totally foreign? Is that just from my uh, ring? What's it called? Around the whisper around the world. All right, we call it a telephone. It goes by many names, but you're familiar with it. And at the end, the person says what they heard. And we all laugh, ha, ha, because it's so different from what it started as. You know that game. And some people say, well, if you've got all these copies, isn't that then uh, what happens to the Bible, that at the end it's so garbled that it's not even close to what Mark would have originally written? That is not what we find. People continue, by the way, to discover in archaeological digs and such ancient fragments of the New Testament from totally different times and places. And when we pull all those together, 
it is staggering how remarkably similar they are to one another. They're virtually identical with one another. And so we pull all those pieces together in whole parts and look at them all, all the manuscripts that we've got, and that's then what gets translated into English, which now sits in your lap. Now, if the reality of transmission or translation is still troubling to you, it helps me, at least, to remember that Jesus has claimed to be eternal, the eternal Son of God. And Jesus said uh, lots of things from the Old Testament. He quoted from the Old Testament frequently. So at the time of his life, that would have been written a thousand years before him. And he's basically telling us through that, that even though God has given his word into the hands of fallible men, his word has been protected. God can reliably make sure that that text is the word of God. So it's still true. It still remains. It's still trustworthy. God did and does protect his word because he wants to tell us who he is. So then what you have in your lap is a very reliable translation of Mark's original Greek writing. Now to get to this point, it's a lot of work. A lot of people faithfully and painstakingly copied these things over centuries to take great care that what is preserved in all the branches ends up looking like what Mark had written, or being what Mark had written. But even though there's a lot of hard work in this, that does not mean that there's not some occasional mess. We have to acknowledge that. That as we look at those 5,000 plus copies, there are some differences amongst them. Now, the vast majority, the vast, vast majority, are very minor differences. A difference in spelling, usually of a person's name or a, or a place. Sometimes the difference is uh, that one copy is lacking an article, so an A or a V is missing somewhere, but we still know exactly what he means and what was there. But very rarely, there are some signif significant differences amongst the copies. And when that happens, the translator of that text will usually tell you. It's usually footnoted in your Bible so that you know that that's happening. That happens here. It also happens in John chapter 8 with the woman who's caught in adultery. So that's what these last verses that I did not read are. Now, there's nothing in these verses that's theologically problematic for us. There's nothing that goes against the Bible or is inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. So I could preach these and be totally faithful to Scripture. But most scholars agree, as do I, that these last 12 verses in Mark, what's called the long ending or the verses that I did not read, are not part of Mark's original writing. They were a later edition by a scholar somewhere along the way. So I'm not going to preach from that. Today will be the last uh, sermon from Mark because I want to end where Mark ended. 
Although in fairness, I can completely understand why someone would later want to write on the real ending. Because look where Mark ends. Let's read it again. Verse 7. So this is in the middle of what the what the young man, what we see now as an angel, is telling the women. Verse 7, the angel says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Isn't that a strange end? It's very abrupt. And it seems like there's a few puzzle pieces missing here, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus had said, and he's consistent with this throughout Mark's gospel, that he came to give his life as a ransom for sinners. And he did that. That means that he, he, he died to pay the price for sin. If you were here with us last week, that's what it means, that he was forsaken by God the Father. That the distance between uh, us and God would be put upon Jesus so that we can come to God. And, and that's secured And not only the fact that Jesus died, but that also he was raised again, alive and victorious. The resurrection, then, is the climax of the Gospels. And the three other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, all record appearances of Jesus to various people. But Mark, we don't actually see Jesus. We just end with a few scared women. So that probably brings up a really big question for us. Why would Mark end this way? Why would Mark end this way? I think there's at least three things that an ending like this does to us. There's three ways that this impacts us. The first one is this, the way that Mark ends the gospel of Jesus encourages us to fear. The way that Mark ends his gospel of Jesus encourages us to fear. I have to say that twice because some I know will go, wait a minute, did he just say we're supposed to fear? Yes, we want to fear. You know, earlier in this text, in verse 5, when the women first come into the tomb and there's the young guy sitting at the side, he's dressed in a white robe, it says they were alarmed at the end of that. And, and, and the angel says to them, don't be alarmed. So we know that fear is not always a right or good or fitting response. There are many, many times in the scriptures where the Christian is encouraged not to fear. In fact, Joseph, earlier in the section, uh, when he asked for the body of Jesus from Pilate in verse 43, it says he took courage or he went boldly. He, he put away the fear that he might have had in approaching Pilate about that. But also look at the very end. So even though the women were alarmed and told not to be alarmed, in, in verse 8, we can't avoid the fact that their closing response here is 
trembling, astonishment, and they were afraid. And that is often a fitting response to Jesus. If you've been with us over the course of the year, you've seen Jesus calm waves of a storm with a word. And when the disciples saw that, it said they were afraid. We've seen when Jesus healed the paralyzed man and just said, stand up and walk, and he did, the people feared. When Jesus himself walked on the water, the people who saw it feared. When Jesus raised the synagogue ruler's dead daughter back to life, the ones who saw it feared. And when Jesus was transfigured in the garden, radiant with the revealed glory of God, those who saw it feared. My favorite example of this, though, comes in chapter 5 of Mark, if you want to turn back there, um, with the interaction that Jesus has with, with Legion. You'll remember him, but you may already know the scene. The whole, the whole account here sounds like a scene right out of a Halloween movie. I mean, there is plenty to fear in this situation. The man that's described in chapter 5 is insane and bloody and naked. He's violent and he is strong enough to bring metal cha- break metal chains right off of his body. He lives in a graveyard and he is filled with an army of evil, a legion of demons. This man is met by Jesus. And you know the story. He interacts with him a bit and then casts the demons out into the pigs. You see then here the response of the people. Mark chapter 5, verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Do you hear it in there? The people looked at the scene when all is resolved at the end. And they feared. They didn't fear the man. They fear Jesus. Because they've just seen in him the raw power of God. Now, some will tell us that, you know, we know the Bible very often talks about a godly fear. And often that's a reference to having some sort of reverence or respect or honor for God, and that's true. That is a big part of it. Very often that's the meaning, but it's more than that. At times, the fear of God means literally trembling. Now, to be clear, we don't fear Jesus because he doesn't love us or doesn't have mercy. I mean, he used his power to to heal, to cast out demons, and to raise the dead. We also don't fear Jesus because we feel like he'll fly off the handle at any moment. 
little kids felt safe with him and wanted to come to Jesus. And we don't fear Jesus because he uses his power to coerce or control us, even though we often see that culturally. Even in a society that demeaned women, women here gladly and freely followed after Jesus. So why then do we fear Jesus? On some level, we must fear him because he is God. And he is a God who will not be tamed by man. He is a God whose purposes are beyond our control. Now, to fear God in this way is actually a comfort to us even though it may not seem that way. You remember the story of Job. You know it. I don't have to tell the whole story, but uh, Job had a really rough go. Uh, just in the first few chapters, he loses his home, his family, his health, pretty much everything that he has. And the, there's now several dozen chapters of him interacting with people about it. But at the end, how does the Lord God comfort Job? It's not with a hug. Although very often the Lord is gentle and tender like that. But no, this time the Lord comforts Job by appearing to him in a whirlwind. Lightning, thunder, tornadoes, whatever that was, the power thunders. And he's, now Job is interacting with God and there Job finds rest in the fear of God. We know the God of the Old Testament and of the entire Bible is often intense. Sometimes he shatters mountains. He builds and destroys nations. And that God is the same. He does not change. It's we who are changed before that God that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, then makes a sinner righteous before a holy God so that we can stand confidently, but we don't want to lose, at least in some sense, our, our fear. I know sometimes the fear of God can feel very foreign to us. I don't know why that is. There may be a complex set of reasons, but very often we grow accustomed to the things that we read so often in the Bible to the point where they sometimes start to feel normal. We go, oh yeah, you know, of course, of course Jesus can raise from the dead. Yeah, he's Jesus. You know, the, the, whatever you attach to, he's Jesus after. We get used to those amazing things and start to lose the strike of it. We start to lose our fear and sometimes we even begin to grow bored with God. Mark then would call us back to see Jesus again for who he is because the women at the tomb got it right, at least in some sense. They hear that Jesus is alive, and while that's a huge celebration moment, their first response is to think, who is this Jesus who holds the beast of death even on a leash. And as they feel that, they shiver. 
Mark then also wants us to see the living Jesus and in some sense to fear. Now, it's not only that. I said there were three things. I just got through one. The other ones won't be quite as long as that one is. The first is that Mark encourages us to fear, but the second is that the way that Mark ends his gospel of Jesus here is that it encourages us in faith. Mark records not one appearance of Jesus after he's been raised. Mark also leaves no doubt about the fact that Jesus is raised. I mean, there's an angel sitting here in the tomb that announces it. And Jesus, throughout his gospel, has talked about the fact of what he's doing and what, what, he, what he's headed toward and the fact that he'll be killed and the fact that he will be raised. And most recently, his announcement about that happened just three days ago, just after the Last Supper in chapter 14, verse, well, if I can find it here. Verse 28, Jesus says this, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's also the thing, by the way, that the angel says, just in case you wondered if he was right about it or not. I mean, there are, there are many appearances of Jesus recorded in the other Gospels and the New Testament letters, but even if we did not have those, even if all we have about Jesus is Mark's Gospel, it would still be reasonable to believe that Jesus is alive. Strange, but reasonable. Because in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus as utterly different from anyone else in the entire gospel. And you have to acknowledge that just by reading through this guy, Jesus, is much more than a man. And while there's something mysterious about him, he is always credible. He is supernaturally powerful. And Jesus tells us the truth. And so when he says that he will die and be raised, it's reasonable to believe him. That brings up still a question for us. Because if Mark believes this, and he does, if Mark knows that there are many witnesses to the appearances of Jesus, he knows that the women, even though they haven't said anything here, that they will soon see Jesus, they will soon share, they will tell other people that there's more to this story. Why then does Mark not tell us that part of the story? Why doesn't Mark show us that Jesus really is alive? I think the answer to that is that Mark wants to help us walk by faith and not by sight. We know the anchor for a Christian is not our eyes. It's not our fingertips. It's not our own experiences. The true anchor for a Christian is to trust in a faithful God. And so, for example, we don't believe that heaven is for real because someone saw it and then wrote later a modern book about it, not to slam those things. But the reason we believe things like heaven is for real is because God tells us these things are real in his book. And that's enough. 
That's not a blind trust, but it, but it is trust. In the Gospels, the ones who are most hard-hearted are the ones who are constantly asking Jesus for signs, for miracles, for evidence, for Jesus to prove it. They're saying, I'll believe it when I see it. That even happened amongst the disciples uh, with, with doubting Thomas, or maybe it's better to call him disbelieving Thomas. But even then, Jesus, in that occasion, had mercy. You can look and see what Jesus says in response to Thomas in John chapter 20, just a couple verses here. Verse uh, 26, John 20, uh, 26 Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Mark's doing the same thing for us here. He doesn't show us Jesus so that we can see him with our eyes. He's asking us to believe Jesus and that that will be a blessing to us. And that's an encouragement to me when I struggle in faith. If you've ever had moments where you feel a little wavery, where you might feel like, I, I just want to shout out to God, like, show yourself, God, come out of the shadows. You've ever had that moment? Instead of giving me evidence, we're asking God to help us to return to the things that are true. We say to him, Lord, Strengthen my faith. Strengthen my trust in you. Help me to believe. And he will. It may take time, but he will. So there's two things. One last one. Uh, Mark encouraged us to fear and to have faith. But the last way that Mark ends with his Gospel of Mark, the effect is that it encourages us to finish the story we're encouraged here to finish the story. Now, by this, I do not mean Jesus did his part. Now, you've got to do your part. That's not what I mean. We know that, that we are called to obey and follow Jesus, but at every single moment, we always still need Jesus to follow him. Um, what I do mean when I say finish the story is that Mark here is inviting us to engage with this true story because the story's ongoing. If you were here with us a year ago, when we read Mark chapter one, verse one, the opening words of Mark's gospel are, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now that we hear it as last words, he doesn't say the end of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In fact, he doesn't say the end at all. Like, I read so many stories now to Eliza, and at the end, even if it's not there, I always say, the end, usually before the story's over, because we're crying and we need to end. 
But the story ends, the end, and you close the book. But here it's not like that. It doesn't even seem like there's a, a, a conclusion. It's actually the opposite effect. At the end of this, I'm left going, what happened? There's just a bunch of scared ladies running around and a guy in a tomb going, he's risen. You should probably go, to, go tell somebody, and then he'll meet you in Galilee. Uh, 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 okay. You know, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, you know, you know that by now, wrote um, a book that didn't have a title, but eventually was named The Dark Tower, and he never finished it because he died uh, before it was finished. He wrote 90 pages. Here's, here's the last of it. Q had been experiencing, experimenting with the possibilities of some inanimate instrument without the need of the old precarious psychological exertions. In 74, he produced his... It was like half a sentence. In 74, he produced his... And that's the end of the book. It's a novel with no ending. It just stops. And if you can see in the book, there's just blank space here. And the first time I wrote this, you could see something I'd written in the margin, which is... Bah! B-A-H-H-H-H-H with three exclamation points. Because I was so fascinated by what was going on and frustrated at the fact that where was this going and I, 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 I don't even get to hear the end of it. What happens next? Mark, I think, does that to us on purpose. He's actually inviting us here to pursue the rest of the story. The last punctuation mark here, it doesn't seem right that it would be a period. The last punctuation mark, if, sorry, grammar nerd here, and you know, I like punctuation, would be an ellipse, the dot, dot, dot. It almost feels like there's more that's left to follow, which leaves then a question instead of an answer. The question is, if Jesus is no longer in the tomb, if Jesus really is alive, if Jesus really is risen, what does that mean then for the women? What does that mean then for the disciples? What does that mean then for for the world? If Jesus really is risen, what does that mean for you? follower of Jesus. Mark doesn't answer that. So I don't want to fill in blanks that he didn't fill in. He kind of leaves that for us to pursue, and I I hope that you will pursue and seek after where the Lord, by his word, would take you there. But at least broadly, I do want to give us a taste of what that might mean, that Jesus really is alive. Last place we'll go in 2 Corinthians 4. This is the effect if Jesus really is written, if Jesus really is written. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in 14. It's the middle of a sentence here, but that's okay. Paul says this. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
For it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul says here that he he wants the grace of Jesus then to be shared. You remember the words of the angel, the one command was go tell And the effect of that is there would be an increase of grace. There'd be an increase of thanksgiving. There'd be an increase of the glory of God that is more and more people come to fear the Lord and to have faith in the Lord. And and, and not only that, if Christ is raised, then you are raised with him too. And that has a huge impact on us if we keep going. Verse 16, he says this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says here, don't, don't lose heart. Even when it feels, and it actually is the real, that you're wasting away, do not give up, because you're being prepared for something. And even though we don't see Jesus on earth any longer, Jesus is alive and reigns with glory that is beyond all things that we could compare. So now, even though we've come to the end of the true story of Jesus in Mark's gospel, the story of Jesus is ongoing. And so now, Where would he take you, dot, dot, dot? Would you pray with me? Our Lord God, would you help us to be true followers of you and not to lose heart? Lord, would you make us people who fear you, who have faith in you, and who by your strength finish well. Because we know that you, Jesus, are the living God. Help us now to trust you as we follow. In Jesus' name, amen.